Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is a podcast, and if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. I'm also sitting here with one of the friends. This is Alice, who is also a student at Fosun Fokuskola and also a boat builder. So, Alice, welcome to Strangely Friends, the podcast. Thank you very much. So, to kick things off, I guess I'll have you tell everyone who's listening where you are from. I'm from the UK, mm-hmm. and I live right on the edge of Wales, in the countryside. Um, yeah. Where exactly on the edge of Wales in the countryside? Or are you like, you don't want to say because <laughs> the name is don't too to particular? Um, it's a county called Herefordshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's right on the edge of a nature, big nature reserve called the Brecon Beacons, mm-hmm. um, which is, which goes all the way into Wales, which is... I mean, we call them mountains, but they're they're really hills. But from where I come from, they feel like mountains. Um, Are they taller or shorter than Blauhaya? Probably about the same. About the same as Blauhaya? So about a thousand feet? Yeah, Hmm. yeah. Um, But they're very wild. When you're within them, it feels like you're in Scotland. Mm. Um, So there's that, like, wildness which is really special. Mm -hmm. I think uh, at some point I tried to watch one of the, you know how every like country has a sad detective show. So like it, it started with like, there was like Wallander was like, I think a sad detective show from Sweden or something or Denmark or something. And then there's like, every country has like a show about like an old detective and he's like got a drinking problem or whatever and he's just always sad and then the crimes are very grim like you know it's a a child has been abducted by a by a ring of uh carpenters and and then they're like making the child uh you know put in uh the electrical lines underneath houses that are full of spiders or something and it's always like very very grim um, there was one that took place in Wales, and I can't remember what it was called for the life of me, but I believe it was filmed in those kind of mountains. In the valleys. Mm, the valleys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mentioned Blauhe a minute ago. That's the the national mountain of Fosun, we have been told. Uh, it's what, a thousand... It's like a it's sort of a flat dome-shaped thing, about a thousand feet tall, and they're quite proud of it. Uh, here, I, I feel so bad sometimes, like, oh, these mountains, and I'm like, hmm, not, mm-hmm, well, <laughs> mountains, hmm. Uh, it's all relative. It is, it is definitely all relative. The, the mountain in my county back home is 12,000 feet or something like that. Oh. 15,000. I'm sure somebody is screaming at their their headphones right now that I'm getting the height wrong on uh, comacultion, but that's yeah, something like that. Um, so you're here building boats. Mm-hmm. We actually built boats again today. <laughs> it feels like it's been so long been since we built weeks. boats. <laughs> it has actually been weeks, hasn't it? Nearly two weeks. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, we sailed out to an island and, and killed some sheep. 
Yeah, to put it simply. Yeah. Uh, we got very wet. We got very wet. Uh, for those of you listening at home, Fosun uh, has an island called Utsutoya. Yeah. Uh, and it has a, it's just sort of a, how, how big would you say it is? A couple of square kilometers? Something yeah. Like a square mile, maybe? Yeah, it's small. Quite small. Uh, and there's a couple cabins there. And then the school just has a flock of about 40 sheep that run wild. So we went there last week, and the second day we were there, we all stood in a long line, stretching from one side of the island to the other, and just sort of walked and pushed the sheep into a holding pen. And then they were all weighed and medicated, and all of the lambs were, you know, I mean, lambs, they were quite large at this point. Mm-hmm. It's 60, yearlings. 50, 60 it's pounds. Yearlings. Yearlings, yeah. yeah. Um, and most of them got sent on a boat to the mainland. Which and we both went on. We, we were both on the, we were on the lamb boat. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple of them were uh, slaughtered on the island, and we had a big uh, spit roast barbecue of one of them. Yeah. Did you, I guess, yeah, I'll talk about the, let's talk about the boat trip first, because we, we did, we went on that special extra boat trip on that thing that was like kind of a cross between a a spaceship and a D-Day landing boat. Uh, yeah, that was this whole other side adventure that you and I and um, a couple of, another boat builder, Dayon, and Oscar for some reason, I guess Oscar is Dayon's roommate and they often do things together. They come in pairs. Yeah. How would you describe Oscar to someone who's never met Oscar? Ooh la la. <laughs> He's like a, a big, loud bear. <laughs> He's very gentle and very loud all at once. Um, yeah, I, he hadn't really made any, imp- he's not in my bulk, our bulk, and he hadn't really made much of an impression on me until one night at uh, dinner he stands up and goes, so we're about to open Fosun's most exclusive club. <laughs> There's going to be sort of some reggae and Afro beats and you can all come and dance. It'll be upstairs in the Fellas, Fellas Hall uh, at eight, half eight, 8.30, I think. Uh, so come, uh, we will have a club, the Folsom Night Club. And if you don't know how to dance, come and I'll teach you. Yeah. And I was just like, who is this guy? And he just like continues to be that personality so often. And so it was, it was strange that, you know, Dayon is like pretty quiet and fun and he's in the, the boat building with us. But like my entire impression of Oscar was like this like party dude. And so to be on the boat with him and he's just kind of quietly sitting yeah. there, feeling the breeze in his face, enjoying the scenery was fascinating. To, like, watch somebody that is, like, generally this really big thing be a, just kind of there. And yeah, I think he... I, the more I get to know him, the more I feel his sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And he's very intuitive as to what people are feeling. Mm-hmm. And, like, tuning in, like, if people are okay and how they are and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, being on that boat was was really 
an, an kind of an odd thing because we left everybody else mm. to go like to a different island and, and we had we to get to Utsutoya we sailed in the school's boats and then this other side trip where we had 35 lambs all crammed into this little landing boat was uh was very different because it felt much more modern we were going mm. a lot faster we were going a lot further and we were taking these lambs to be slaughtered mm-hmm. um and it felt sort of there was a sort of romanticized aspect of being on the island. Mm-hmm. It was very sort of beautiful and we were carrying the lambs and then suddenly we were on this motorboat and it was like the harsh reality of like we are taking these lambs to be slaughtered. Yeah. Which is interesting because I think by the time we did the slaughtering the next day, mm. I had kind of like settled into that mindset. Yeah. Of like what is happening. Yeah. What? What? Tell me about your experience of that, if you can. The um, slaughtering. The slaughtering. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was interesting. It was mixed for me, and I think I spent a lot of the time while it was happening trying to work out what I was feeling. I was mm-hmm. feeling all sorts of different emotions. Um, I think in in abstract, I think it's a really good and important thing to to be involved in the reality of this process if you eat meat and you know obviously if if you don't want to go there that's fine but I think if you eat if for me eating as I do eat meat it felt really important to to face the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually being there, the moment when the life left the sheep, I found it quite shocking. Mm. It's not, it's not something I've witnessed before. And just to, to be the reason that this animal has lost its life mm-hmm. felt really weird. I, I felt a I felt very emotional, but then also slightly disconnected afterwards because I've got this story in my head that this is, you know, this is a good thing and, you know, we're doing it in a really, really humane, good way and we're going to use all the parts of the sheep, we're going to eat all the meat, we're going to use the skin, we're going to use the bones to carve things, you know, I... As far as any slaughtering goes, I think this is, like, the ideal. Right. But that doesn't, I guess, take away from the reality of it. Mm -hmm. I think, from talking to some of the other students, I think the specific way that it happened where, uh, you know, I think it's very good that the school said that that if you want to eat the meat at the the spit roast of the, you know, the kind of uh, ancient style cooking Mm. thing that we did with that whole lamb... Mm you have to witness the slaughter and the, the subsequent sort of butchering and skinning and all of that to, to really deeply engage with the mm. process. And it was optional. There are a few people who didn't. Mm. Um, but at the same time, because there were so many people observing, 
you know, they, they bring out this lamb and then 70 of us sit mm-hmm. in a big circle in the field and sort of watch this all happen. Mm. That, I feel like, felt a little... I don't know. It, that felt a little weird. Mm-hmm. Not, not that... Like flaw- it was this spectacle. Yeah. It, it sort of almost turned into a spectacle, a thing that I think maybe... I don't know, because I, I wanted it. I'm glad everyone there got to observe it, but it also felt... Mm. If that makes sense. Mm. Um, yeah, I... I didn't, we, we weren't actually doing it. Mm-hmm. We were just watching. Yeah. I felt sort of uncomfortable in that situation, but then later, when I was part of a smaller group of about 10 people who went and... Because we... Um, we slaughtered and um, butchered two more, uh, like kind of on the other side of the hill away from everybody. That felt actually really, this is something I've been struggling with how to put into words because it's like, on the one hand, I want to say things like, it felt good, it felt felt comfortable, but I don't want to be like, oh yeah, it felt good to kill an animal and cut it up. But at the same time, like it, there was like a rightness to mm. it because we were in the landscape where the sheep lived, mm. and it felt very, nat- maybe natural is the right word, mm. in the sense that like, sort of some of my other experiences with animal uh, butchering and and um, and so and slaughter have been in very artificial environments where it's mm. like a, a butcher shop or something where something is taken in. To a place or, or it's it's happening uh, you know away from the habitat and these sheep like having gotten to run wild their entire lives all over this island to be engaging with the body of the sheep in the context of where it lived felt I guess that's what felt natural mm-hmm. um, as opposed to it felt very unnatural to sit in a circle with 70 people and watch I mean, it just feels unnatural to me sometimes here at Fosin to be sitting in a group of people watching someone else work mm. because we're here to learn that skill. Mm. Like in, in boat building, when we're sitting there at one side of the room and Kenneth is like going to town with an axe and we're all like watching him, but also like in a sense, we're watching someone else work. And I always just have a hard time with that. Mm. Um, but yeah, the... I'm so glad that we got to participate and witness uh, the slaughter because I think it, as you said, it really uh, brings a reality to Mm. eating meat. And I think one of the most valuable things about it, which I didn't realise until after it happened, was the conversations it brought up between people. Mm -hmm. Um, there There were some vegetarians there witnessing this and having very interesting responses and you know it was making people really think Mm -hmm. and question everything um and yeah and actually I spoke to one vegetarian who actually tried some of the meat Mm. and there's something very alive. It felt the meat felt very alive compared to like you know salami that you get in a packet. It was, it you it was real meat and it was fresh and alive. Um, 
Yeah, I think that was really, really important and valuable to experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was... experience I think I will be struggling to put into words for quite a while. <laughs> um, not so much the observing the butchering for me, but participating in mm. a subsequent... Um, and I know some of the people in um, the self-sufficiency and farming course, they're going to be slaughtering like a whole a bunch of pigs, mm. I think, um, week after next or something mm. like that, when we all come back from uh, fall break. So... Uh, other than everything to do with the sheep, how did you find the island? You said uh, wet. It was it very was wet. Very wet. However, mm-hmm. I'm very proud to say that I did not get wet all week. Oh. Um, I now worship my oil skins. Mm-hmm. Um, and my wellies. <laughs> wellies. <laughs> um. Yeah. Good. Good equipment. What What's that saying? There's no such thing as bad weather. Only bad clothing. clothing. Yeah. Ikidale var, bara dala klar. It's the very famous Norwegian saying, it's right up there with utpatur aldrisur. <laughs> when you're out on a hike, you're never unhappy. I can just like, I, I didn't grow up here in Norway, but I could just imagine my dad like saying that to me when I'm grumpy on a hike as a kid. Like, just like, it seems like a da- such a dad thing yeah. to say to an unhappy kid on a hike. Um, there was something that Kenneth said the other day, which I loved, um, when he, he was talking about this book that he's just been reading, mm-hmm. and the last sentence in the book was that people should swim more, because people are never unhappy when they're swimming in cold water. And <laughs> I such a Norwegian totally thing to agree. say. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... It is amazing. I, 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 this week, my friend Kai is visiting from home. And she and I were talking about things she's noticed about me that are different just mm-hmm. since I've been gone the five, six weeks. And one of them is that I am obviously acclimated to much colder temperatures. Like we went out in the kayaks and I was just kind of like not wearing gloves and stuff like I usually wear when kayaking. It was sort of a fun, fun thing to notice that I think Fosun is moving all of our experiences into a colder mm. uh, end of the spectrum. Mm. I mean, even while camping, I. <laughs> you heard about my hammock? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, so on the first night, my hammock broke while I was asleep in it. And so I just re- rearranged my hammock tarp to be sort of a little kind of tent to keep the rain off of above me. And I just slept on the ground for the three subsequent nights and had a great time. And I, I am not sure that I would have been comfortable or excited about doing that had I not kind of settled into the mindset that they have here at Fosun, which is like mm-hmm. very outdoor oriented, very uh, sort of get on with it oriented in the sense of like, I've never been in a place that is more dedicated to pushing people in a gentle way mm. and in a way that everyone can, you know, as, as much as I felt that the whole vibe of everything was pushing me to try to exceed my own perceived limits in terms mm. of how I could comfortably sleep outdoors. But also I felt like the, as much as I felt pushed in that direction gently, I also felt like the school was really providing an out 
for people who didn't want to be on the island. I, I, I feel like it's, it's, they encourage us to push our own limits, but only in with regards to what we feel we can do. Mm-hmm. It's not sort of comparing yourself to others and everyone's got to be at this level. Right. It's just about growing and, and yeah, stepping out of your comfort zone. I, uh, yeah, so like the, the fact that they had the, the short uh, boat ride to a bus to go home like two days early for mm. people who weren't feeling well. Mm. As, as much as I feel like sometimes Fosun just throws us all into the water and hopes we can swim, mm. I feel like there is kind of this undercurrent of a lot of care yeah. that makes taking those risks feel really good. Yes, and, and because you know that actually, if if you can't manage, mm-hmm. you're safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I love that. I've I've been really taking advantage of that personally mm. to like try sleeping just under my tarp and and to try out um, sort of different I don't know different ways of doing things. I've mm. definitely gotten my my camping setup dialed in a way that I've never had before. Mm. Yeah. Well, also because I feel like we're going camping every week and then we come back here for five days and you can sort of think about it yeah. and dry everything out yes. and then try yes. again. Yeah, uh, yeah it's... Oh, I'm having a great time. You seem to be having a great time here. I'm having a great time. I think I... I'm like the happiest I've been for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, in my in my life back home, you know, I have happy... You know, I'm generally pretty happy, mm-hmm. but it's here I feel like joyous a lot of the time. There's so much that just makes me feel joyous. I think going for a swim every morning in the lake has really affected me as well. Mm. Um, I just, you know, instead of like waking up and feeling sleepy and cold and tired and then sort of trudging into the the dining hall to have breakfast you know I just get up go for a swim and then immediately I come back just like ready to face the day and feeling already like awake and happy Mm. um yeah yeah that's I found a similar mentality to that with waking up and going for a run every morning yeah in that you don't really have to be totally awake to go out and and go for a run or go for a walk or whatever, whatever you do outside. I think sort of thinking about it more broadly, like you can, you can have your morning activity that becomes a routine that you actually fully wake up as you're doing that thing. Mm, You don't have to wake up before you do anything. Yeah. You can be woken up slowly. And I, I know, I know for some of my listeners, the idea of going for a run at 5.30 AM or going and jumping in a freezing cold lake at uh, 6 AM maybe isn't their idea of paradise, but I think I think everyone has something that if they made it their morning routine, they would be excited to wake up and do it. Mm. Be that, um, I don't know, years and years ago, I would wake up every morning. That was how I, I trained myself to wake up early, is I woke up at some ridiculous time and I watched an episode of Veronica Mars because I was really <laughs> into that show. And so it was like, if I woke up at five, I could watch Veronica Mars before I had to start my day. And so that was great. I, I remember the back half of all of the episodes of Veronica Mars. I don't really remember the, the, the beginning of every episode because I was kind of half asleep. Um, but, it, you know, it, it can be anything. And I think you sort of, 
not in a like go 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 get things done but like you just you you hit the ground running in the sense that like you're sort of you arrive in your day as a participant Mm. whereas the the few mornings that i've woken up here and as you said like rolled into the dining hall and just sort of had breakfast and like tried to wake up in that process have felt really crappy Mm, yeah um not because I feel like I've missed the day, but just I just kind of feel out of step with where I want to be. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think also being, you know, there are a lot of us living here together. Gosh. We're surrounded by people most of the time. And to just have those times where you can just, you know, even though I do often go for a swim with people, mm-hmm. there's a very, like, intimate relationship with going into the water that's just between my body and the water Mm -hmm. it's it's very um sort of grounding for me within the chaos (laughs) yeah there are there's way more togetherness here than i am generally comfortable with Mm. um it's very very difficult for me and I think finding those rituals and those times to go be by yourself, um, whether physically or mentally, mm. are so critical. Mm. I, I don't know. I've, I've been curious to ask some of the other students how they feel being here in relationship to whatever's going on back where they came from. So, like, for me, I, I know this is the wrong idea, but I, I really feel that whatever whatever's going on back in my hometown that I will probably go back to after this is all in a kind of stasis. Mm. Like I just kind of, I've hit pause and I've, yeah. I, I, I mean, I understand intellectually that my friends are doing things that my parents are. I feel very disconnected from yeah. the reality. Mm. I'm just here and it's a very distant kind of abstract concept. Mm-hmm. The idea of home. <laughs> And I, I think also, like, at least for me, my phone doesn't have service here, so I'm only getting it where I'm at Wi-Fi or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I'm less and less engaged as time goes on mm-hmm. because I have to, like, consciously think to bring my phone to the Wi-Fi mm-hmm. and plug it in. And ditto for using my computer or anything. I've just, yeah. as much as I feel like I have no free time here, I've been doing a lot of reading. Yeah. Because uh, my books uh, don't need Wi-Fi. I don't know if you knew that. Um, paper books don't need Wi-Fi. You, uh, you, you younger end of the millennial spectrum, you don't... Uh... Are you even a millennial, now that I think about it? 2000, baby. Oh my gosh. That's just... It's so wild that... I don't know. I'm here with a bunch of people who were born after the turn of the millennium. And we're all, like, doing the same, you know, we're all in school together. I think that's another thing that I really like about this school is that because it's quite niche Mm -hmm. in what it offers and generally people are more mature coming Mm -hmm. here and there's quite a big variety of ages Mm -hmm. and having some older adults with also younger sort of uh, late teens... Mm -hmm. It's just really nice for everyone to mix in together. It just feels really natural. Yeah, well, I think it's it's such a self-selecting group of people, right? Yeah. 
it's 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 interesting even to witness the differences between the various courses so like how all of us boat builders fit together mm. like we we all got pretty tight pretty quick because we were all people who had like a very specific desire in coming here mm. as opposed to you know whatever those weirdos are doing downstairs in the tiny house building class or fucking around yeah <laughs> hitting nails into wood making a lot of noise well, I I don't I don't totally understand what's going on, but I know that they've built the frame for a wall like three times and then <laughs> taken it apart and put what? it back together. I don't know what they're doing. They don't. I they think don't, they know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Not that we know what we're doing, but I think Kenneth knows what we're doing, yeah. and that's the important <laughs> the important thing. Um, I re- actually I really enjoy something I really enjoy about Kenneth is mm-hmm. that he he only gives us information that we need. He doesn't, like, overwhelm us and Mm. tell us everything. Mm -hmm. And so I just have kind of developed this trust for him that I just know if there's anything I need to know, he'll tell me, and I don't need to worry about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, up until, like, two weeks ago, we had no idea what boats we were building. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I just trust that he knows what he's doing, and he will let us know if we Mm -hmm. need to know. And I, I think also, I just looking back over the last month or so, uh, talking to my friend as she's been visiting, I'm realizing how much I've learned and retained mm-hmm. and taken in. Like a lot of my experience of school going to uni prior to this is that I could sort of pull in information and hold on to it and do something with it up until the exam or the test or whatever. And then it was just kind of, Mm. not there whereas there is no test here so there's no yeah and it all builds upon each other i mean it's it's the same thing uh with us learning norwegian i feel like i've kind of hit a some sort of tipping point where my norwegian learning has actually sped up because i'm past some sort of contextual point Mm. um it, all, it definitely depends on who I'm talking to or listening to. Yeah. Uh, I still can't understand uh, anything Lena says. Or Tura. Or Tura. <laughs> yeah, why is it that the most difficult to understand Norwegian is the one who's in charge of teaching us to speak Norwegian? <laughs> and she only speaks to us in Norwegian. And it's, well, and it's like Trondish. It's like a very specific dialect that yeah. I just and cannot... it's so fast. Mm. It's just like absurd. But uh, I guess that's maybe part of the Fosun way. Yeah. <laughs> Straight in the deep end. How's, uh, how's your Norwegian going? It's good. Mm. It's slow. I think I struggle to like, tutor myself. So mm. I don't think I was that prepared when I arrived here. Mm. Um, and I also learn things in a very intuitive, kind of sublim- subliminal way. Mm-hmm. So for me, the past, however many, how, how long have we even been here for? Five or six weeks. Yeah. So that, that past time has just been kind of absorbing it and sort of training my ear mm-hmm. to be familiar with the language and kind of just get a, like a, a sense of the language and the, the sounds and the essence and just the shape of the language. And now I'm, I'm beginning to actively learn mm-hmm. and um, I've got 
really nice children's book mm-hmm. about a little boy who goes to visit his grandfather in his cabin and they go fishing and it's really really sweet um so i'm reading that and translating that and just learn like now i'm familiar with the words Mm -hmm. even though i don't know what they mean Mm. and so it means that as soon as i translate it it sticks Mm -hmm. because i've just got like a foundation now right um even though i wouldn't say i know much content or much vocab um so i'm feeling excited Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I think part of that tipping point for me was I got past a certain threshold of the little linking words. Yeah, I need, so, to, I need to work on them. Like every time I hear someone say men, I'm like, okay, that's but. So we're, we're now like contradicting in a secondary clause and like that kind of thing. And I've gotten to a point where all of those words are just registering as their meanings mm, for me. You don't have to translate, mm-hmm. yeah. So I can actually start to focus in on the proper nouns mm. and and verbs and things, which are really where the meat of content lives. Yeah. Uh, well, to close out the podcast, do you want to try? Uh, I'll speak some Norwegian and you can translate. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, bet, I, bet, I bet you can do it. I will speak very slowly. I know, very I know. Clearly. You can speak some Norwegian and then... Mm-hmm. You can translate it. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you a chance to translate it just in, just in case. If, you, if you're feeling up to it. So here, here, here we go. Can you help me? <laughs> Can you help me? Jeg har lust fra kaka. I am something, something, cake. Jeg har lust is... Uh, well, it, it's, have, it literally translates, I have a lust. But in Norwegian, it's just like, I have a desire for cake. Yeah. Jeg har lust for kaka. Kan du send my kaka? That's a classic, strangely sentence. Can you send me the cake? Jeg vil ha åtta kaken. I will have... Otta? Otta, eight. Eight mm-hmm. cakes. Mm-hmm. bra. <laughs> also, I just want to comment on the fact that Strangely's beard is currently full of wood shavings. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure if he's aware of it or not. I was sitting next to... I mean, I was working on my little um, hovel, hovel, little block plane that I'm trying to build. And... Kama was near me using that electric plane and just spraying shavings <laughs> my way. So I'm not surprised that my beard is full of shavings. It's a good look. It's oh. a very fulsome look. Well, thank you. Uh, and thank you for coming on the podcast. And thank you for having me. Very, very lovely to have a bit of a prat. As the, a uh, prattle. A prattle. A uh, bit of a chin wag. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for chatting with me. Mm. Thank you all so much at home also for listening to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. As always, the podcast is supported by my listeners over at patreon.com strangely. If you've got questions for me or Alice or any of the other guests who've appeared on the podcast lately, you can send those to strangely at tuta.io, T-U-T-A or you can leave them in the comments on my website or on Patreon. I am... 
very excited that we have a fall break coming up and I'm going to go hang out with a friend in Bergen and eat a lot of ice cream, I hope. So stay tuned for that update. What are, what are you doing? You're going to a friend's cabin, right? I'm going to a cabin about three hours south from here, mm-hmm. up in the mountains. I'm told it's the most beautiful part of Norway. I'm very excited for that. And we're going to have a very cosy, ugly time. Fairly bra. Yeah. <laughs>